The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are the church. We're not the whole church. We are the little local church gathered right here. However many of us were able to be here today, others are gone traveling, others are at home for some reason or other watching online, various ones in different places, but we are the ones you have gathered here. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for promising that where a couple of us are gathered, there you are too. You're in our midst. By your Spirit, You've commissioned him to come and to fill this place. He dwells in each of our hearts, and he inhabits a people here now. We praise you and ask you then, move us towards you. Remove from us any sense of audience and observation and put into us instead worshiper, participant, family, unity. Lord, we need you for that because that's uncommon. We need your grace for that. So please take this time here and focus our attention together that, that we can, as a group, hear your word spoken to us from you. We can be conformed by it, by you, to what you mean for us as your people, your body to be. Give us grace to hear and grace to be different, grace to follow you. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word and form a church here this morning that has some idea about what we're about, some realistic perspective on what's going to happen and how we are to endure through that. Endure through that in joy. So speak from your word. Shape us to be a people pleasing to you. A people that is immensely glad. Immensely glad in everything. It's the mark of people who know you. Who know what it is to to be connected to eternal good and who live showing that in the day-to-day. Make us that kind of a people, I pray. Use this passage. Spirit of God, would you please lift up our eyes to understand this passage and to see the Father in all of His glory and all of His goodness. To rest and to worship and to rejoice. Speak through your word now, we pray, Lord. Lift up Christ and build His church. Thank you. Amen. So we turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 2, where we've reached the conclusion of an important section in this book. Throughout most of chapter 1, we've kind of looked at two basic sections. Throughout most of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul was writing, speaking about himself. He's in prison and he's telling us, the readers, about his situation there, what he expects, how he feels about that, what's on his mind, how he's thinking. So the beginning, the first section is mostly about Paul. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, he changes focus, he shifts, and turns his attention towards the church. And gives the command there that 
has been the, you know, the underlying command behind all that we've seen since then, wrapped up last week and, and this week. 127, he told the church, told Christians to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, and then unpacked that, talked about it, and then summarized it again in chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation. Expend energy, effort, to bring the new life that you have been given into this life now, into the nitty-gritty Tuesday afternoon, lived out life. Then he immediately moves to explain something that he means about that verse 14, which we looked at last week. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And all things live dependent on God, not grumbling against Him. Which specifically looks like something in relationship to the body. It looks like not disputing, not, not being contentious, not arguing, but being at peace with one another. That kind of a body is pleasing to God, verse 15, blameless before Him, and is a witness to the world around because that ain't natural. It comes from somewhere divine. It comes from holding fast to the gospel, the very beginning of verse 16. A people like that who hold fast to the gospel, who live at peace with one another, who depend on God, are blameless before God, pleasing to Him in our testimony to the world about what it's like to walk with and to know God. Shining like a light in the dark places. That was last week's passage. And that, as, as we leave there, that can sound optimistic. Here you are, a people different, shining like a light, pleasing to God, showing other people what God is like, pointing them towards Him. That can sound optimistic. But if we remember, if we, if we step back and look at a little bit the larger context, Paul is in prison on trial for his life because... He was shining like a light in the dark places. The Philippians, as I said repeatedly throughout, but you can look at chapter 1, verse 29 and 30, are partakers in suffering, engaged in the same conflict that Paul has because they are shining like lights in the dark place. So, indeed, we are to be a changed people. We are to walk pleasing to God, shining like a light. And sometimes, often, that does not go well in the darkness. So Paul has these two realities in front of him here as he's closing off this second section of exhortation to the church that there is a, a call on our lives, a way that we are to walk that is pleasing to God, that is good and delightful. And that brings hardship sometimes, often. So there's, there's good and there's hard here. These, these two perspectives here as he's closing out this section. And those are two things he's going to touch on today as we look at the end of verse 16, 17, and 18, chapter 2. Something good, something that, that lifts up our eyes and causes us to see and, and to wonder and to hope and to rejoice and something that's a bit sobering also, hardship and suffering. He's going to touch on both of those things today. Let me summarize what, what I think end of 16, 17, 18 is going to get. Let me put it all in one sentence before I read the, the uh, paragraph. Here's my main point that I'm going to work towards this morning. God reminds us of the end to give us direction in service and joyful hope in suffering. God reminds us of the end 
to give us direction in service and joyful hope in suffering. So I'm going to work towards this morning. Let me start by reading verse 14 through 18, just to kind of give us the context again, but then I'm going to be focusing on the end of 16, 17, and 18. Philippians 2, beginning verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 2. I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first one. In view of the end, God's servant lives to build the church with the gospel. In view of the end, God's servant lives to build the church with the gospel. We see this in the second half of verse 16, but because verse 16 is really the, the conclusion of the sentence, 14, 15, 16, you need to walk to it by starting back in 14. So notice the structure there. Paul gives the command in verse 14, and then in 15, he tells them that this is going to leave them, this, this command will leave them blameless before God and a witness in the world. So he's told them what it is that they are to become, this people that, that depend beneath God, that are dependent on him, and then are at peace with each other. He's trying to build up the church. And then he's told them how, beginning of 16, as you hold to the word of life. So what they are to be and how they are to be it, that's the gospel, the word of life. Hold on to that. So he's building the church with the gospel, telling them they need a firm grasp of it, which is exactly, of course, what he does constantly. He's constantly practicing what he preaches, pouring out on them the gospel, watering the church with the gospel so that the church will grow. That's, that's his constant practice. Essentially, he says, to be clear here, because I know for some of us, when I talk about growing by the gospel, that's a little bit cloudy language. So to be clear, what I mean by that Paul expresses in 15 different ways to the church constantly something like this. I want you to understand that God has saved you at the cross. Now indwells you with His Spirit. Communicating, therefore, His very presence to you. He is in you and with you, close to you. He promises to give himself to you and to give you, to provide for you everything else that you need, to provide for you everything that is good, to protect you, to deliver you from evil, 
to shower on you daily bread here now in this life because you belong to him and to carry you all the way through to deliver you at the end into eternal glory. He has given you because of the gospel at the cross himself and everything else now and himself and everything else in the future. That's the gospel. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. You are secure. You are passionately, deeply loved. You have been delivered into a relationship with the one who is the definition of good and glory. You have been given eyes that see. God, good, glorious, kind, gracious, merciful to you, dependable. Dependable, faithful. Preaching that message, that's the gospel and, and some of the implications of the gospel. You don't have to go out and find footing to stand on. You don't have to go out and attempt to make yourself righteous, to justify your behavior, to justify your existence, to secure a future for you. God has done all of that. Believe Him. Trust Him. Cast all of your anxiety and all of your hope on Him. That's the gospel preached with the call to believe, to trust Him. That preach is what builds the church. That's what Paul has spent his life for. To build the people of God with that message. Not with cool music and captivating speech. He shuns the ways of the world because the ways of the world don't build the church. They might gather together a crowd, but they don't build the church. Paul wants to build the church, and so he uses the gospel to do that, to change people. And he does that so that, and now I'm coming to my point for this morning, so that, verse 16, see he has hold fast to the word of life, talked about that last week, so that, the next words, He'll have something in his hands to show Jesus at the judgment. Evidence of his well-spent life. Verse 16, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That is, in a worthless, empty, meaningless way. I did indeed run in labor. I did indeed spend myself in something for something. We all do. We all do. There is a day coming, says Paul, a great day, the day of the Lord. He will return to judge the living and the dead, and he will first of all judge everyone based on the question of eternal destiny. And he will ask everyone, do you know me? Now, obviously, he's not looking for information. He knows the answer. Do you know me? 
Have you cast yourself onto me and the cross? Have you trusted my cross to pay for your sin and to deliver you from the judgment, from the wrath of God? Do you know me? Yes or no? That's the judgment that, Christian, gloriously, we will never have reason to fear. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted him, that, that one's answered. Bless God. But then, on that day, he will indeed judge us too. Paul talks about this frequently. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is examples. The judgment of Christians. What did you do with your life? Beloved one, what did you do with it? And how did you do it? How did you spend yourself? Paul's looking at that and says, in that moment, on that day, I want to stand there proud, not ashamed. It's the word that he uses, proud, in, in a good way, not chest thumping, look at me, but, but proud as opposed to ashamed. I want to stand in that moment on that day commended and not embarrassed or sorrowed by the vain waste of my life. That's what Paul's saying. And notice what it is that would leave him proud and not burdened with the sense of wasted life. He would be proud if in his hands to show Jesus to lay at the feet of Jesus, as it were, if he had a church that holds fast to the gospel, is gripped by the gospel, and is therefore pleasing to God and a testimony in the world. I'm working right backwards to the verses. A church that is dependent on God and a church that is at peace with each other because they held fast to the gospel. He can grab that kind of a church and say, Look, Lord, look. Look what I did. Now, truly, certainly, I can do nothing without you. You are the one who worked in it, so all praise and all glory is due to you. Absolutely. Paul would be really clear about that. But in the same moment, he would also say, but I had to work. And this is what I did with my few years here on earth. This. That's what he wants in his hands. A church built up by the gospel. That's exactly the flow of those verses. I want you to be like this so that I have this to present to Jesus at the end. That's a life worth spending itself on. It's a life spent well. And it's not mercenary. There's perhaps a chance there we might think, so, you told, so you're telling the church that I want you to hold on to the gospel and grow up and depend on God so that you'll have something to be proud of? Is he, is he using them for his own advance? No. Because that's exactly what they need too. That is not using them. That's not doing something to them, to get something from them. That's pursuing his own good in their great good. What does the church need? The church needs the gospel. The church needs to grow, be built up by the gospel. So what Paul is saying is, I will... Remember this definition from earlier? This is the definition of love. I will pursue my great good 
in your great good. I'm going to spend my life for your great good, which is my great good. That's love. To seek my good in your good. To do good to you. Not to do good to me by using you. I'm delighted. I'm satisfied. I long for the thing which you most need. And I will do it for you and benefit from it. That's all good. That's love. That is exactly like... What other servant can you think of that acted like that? Another servant who sought to build the church with the gospel. Jesus. That's the answer. That's the answer. Jesus. It's exactly how Jesus is. The great servant who seeks to build the church with the gospel, who lays down his life to give the people what they need so that he can gather together his bride, pure and spotless, for himself, for them, for himself, for them. Yes. Yes. It's not mercenary. It's love. This is what the servant Jesus, what the servant Paul, and what every single one of us, all of us who are simply servants, we are to be like. It's God's goal. All servants, us included, in view of the end, live to build the church with the gospel. That's all that lasts. The church and the gospel. Everything else that we might live for, vanity, vanity. Christian, you will stand before him. Loved, approved, blameless, accepted, eternally secure, for certain. Don't let go of that. But you will stand before him and he will ask you, what did you do with the brief, short, fleeting, temporary, momentary life that I gave you? What are you going to have in your hands? What you want to have in your hands at that moment. What you want to have in your hands. I'm not telling you what you should have, although of course I am telling you what you should have, but I'm telling you what you want to have in your hands. Is evidence, Lord, look, I spent my life building your church, your people, your kingdom with your word for your glory. That's what you want to lay at his feet. This is what I lived for. I lived to build the church. And I'm specifically saying church there. There's a, there's a subtle point that I need to make in that. A fair number, I don't know what percentage, but a, some fair number of us Western world Christians miss something along the lines of the words church and Christians. I'm talking about church, the body of Christ. I don't mean the building. I mean the body, the people. I'm talking about living to build the people. 
not individuals. Of course, the body is made up of individuals, so to build the, the people, the body, you must build individuals, but I'm trying to draw a con- contrast here between body and what I might call individualistic Christianity. They are not the same. The New Testament knows, this is an extreme statement, this is a true statement, an extreme statement. The New Testament knows nothing of individualistic Christianity. That's a completely foreign concept to the Bible. Individualistic Christianity. And it's extremely common today. It's completely foreign to the Bible, but it's an anomaly that reigns in America. That Christians that see themselves, we, we even have a term, we call it Lone Ranger Christianity. Ever heard that term? The guy who just rides around doing good. It's not in the Bible. The Bible sees individual Christians as individuals indeed and as intimately tied to a people, to a body. It's part of a unit, a family. And every time Paul moves to talk about this, he uses things that make perfect sense. Body, family, unit. There there are no individual feet living out there anyway. They're all part of a body. We, We are an us as well as a me. You can't even begin to obey all of the things we've just been talking about over the last number of weeks if it's just you as an individual. You can't even begin to be of one mind, of one spirit, linked arm in arm with one purpose, considering others as more significant than yourselves, considering the, the, their needs above your own, being at peace with them and not disputing. You can't even do that by yourself. That's assuming a corporate, communal context. And that is what is a great testimony to the world. A people who are together, who are rubbing and working on unity. When we separate and just end up collecting with people that we like, that's just like the world. No different than anybody else. So individualistic Christians do. They exist as islands until they find somebody else who's just like them and they connect with them for a little while until they fall out and then they go over here. No. What we want to lay at the feet of Jesus, what we want to present to I, I spent my life building your body, which of course includes individuals, but is not individualistic. I built your family, your people, And I spent it using the gospel. Not by manipulation or by worldly methods. I didn't seek to build a people by avoiding conflict or controversy. I didn't seek to build a people by leaning on anything other than the message of Christ and Him crucified, calling people to come and die. To come and die to themselves every day. Surrendering to one who himself will take care of you, but giving up your own efforts to do that for yourself. A life spent in the effort of spreading the gospel 
spreading the gospel to the world and to the church, building a people with that message. That is what Paul and we who are simply servants just like him want to hold up and say, look, I did not live a life in vain. And the glorious thing that will receive from the judge, that's the well done, good and faithful servant. Gave you three talents, you invested it. Wonderful. Here's more. In the words of Jesus. That is a, a glorious future. A life lived here now for that, to build the church with the gospel, has a glorious future in front of it, has a commendation, has an approval from God for you waiting in it. That's a good thing. That's what you want. To be a servant who lives building the church with the gospel. However, that being said, just like for Paul and just like for Jesus, that kind of life investment comes with a price tag. It'll cost you. That leads us to the second point. This is one of, it's brief, but it's one of, of sobering difficulty, I think because it's true and hard. Here's the point. Suffering will come as we offer ourselves up as such servants to Christ. If you offer yourself up as a servant to build the church with the gospel, you're signing up for suffering. Suffering, hardship, pain, there's a whole scale that you can use the word suffering for. Suffering can be vicious, violent, physical persecution. It can be just the constant headache of having to press on instead of giving up. Everything in between. Suffering will come as we offer ourselves up as such servants of Christ. At the end of verse 16, you can almost imagine Paul's eyes lifted up, seeing the day, seeing Christ seeing the well-done, good and faithful servant, and then 17, they come back down. He drops his gaze back down and realizes, oh yeah, I'm in a prison cell. Comes back to prison, and the Philippians, they come back. If, they, if their eyes were lifted up by reading verse 16, they come back to their idolatrous Roman neighbors. We come back to this dark world. We always come back, for now. Paul says, I will be proud one day, but right now, something else is going on. This is the, the other half, the reality. I will one day present the fruit of my labor at the feet of Jesus, be proud and commended and hear the well done, good and faithful servant. But right now, I am laboring to produce that fruit. And he has determined that this labor is hard. It brings me suffering. Right now, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, verse 17, he's considering his present reality and he's describing his situation 
using the language of an Old Testament ceremonial sacrifice, a worship sacrifice, worship ceremony, with himself as the sacrifice, part of the sacrifice. The drink offering poured out to God, often poured on the ground. That's the you can't get God to, to drink the liquid, so you'd pour it on the ground and it sinks in and it's consumed, it's gone. His grammar here expresses it as an ongoing, a perpetual outpouring. So he's like, this is a cup. This is my life. This is me. Poured out. Constantly. Not poured out and done. Poured out. Always. Now, scholars debate this. There's a lot in this verse that's debated because it's a kind of confusing verse. The scholars debate this, but I don't think he's talking about, when he mentions being poured out as a sacrifice, I don't think he's talking about his, his execution, an imminent execution. He's already told us that he would prefer to die, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He'd prefer to die, but he thinks that it's more necessary that he lives. He expects to be released. He's going to say the same thing again in a few more verses. I don't think Paul is thinking here about his execution as his pouring out. Rather, I think he's talking about a perpetual pouring out of life, an ongoing sacrifice, an ongoing daily dying especially since he joins himself in his own sacrifice to the sacrifice of the Philippians in the very next phrase, and they, of course, are not facing mass execution. He describes himself as being sacrificed with them, continuing on the verse, poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith or the, the sacrifice and service of your faith. Continuing with the Old Testament imagery, what he's presenting here is there were some determined by God, as God explained it in different places, there were some sacrifices that had multiple pieces to them. This offered, and then this offered, and then this offered. And the point is, God determined what and when and why. And you couldn't just, if you were the worshiper, you couldn't just say, uh, I want to stop here at step one or step two. There's a grain offering to be poured out and offered up, and then a drink offering poured out. I only do the grain this time. You don't have that right. To do that is disobedience. God determined in this situation, for these reasons, do this and this and this. You have to do the whole thing for it to be a, a suitable, worshipful sacrifice. So Paul's presenting a situation like that. They are a sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice with them, poured out on their sacrifice together. Some of those things that are kind of confusing and, and disputed in this passage, what exactly does he mean? If you push the details too far, it gets nonsensical. They're the sacrificers, and they're the sacrifice, and how are they sacrificing Paul? It, if you push it too far, it doesn't make any sense. So step back a moment, and what he's trying to show is that they are together a necessary joint offering. Paul, considering himself, says, for your worship to be right before God, I need to be poured out. And I'm okay with that. 
That's where he's going. But the point we need to consider, I'm spending a lot of time on a, on a minor phrase here because I want to push something on us here. The point we need to consider, a point that's made even more powerful by the fact that it's not the main point, is the joint assumption of daily dying, of suffering. Notice, you read the sentence, he's not teaching that we are going to suffer. He's assuming that to move on to talk about joy and gladness, which we're going to come to in a moment. The assumption is he's going to say to them, and if I'm poured out like a sacrifice on your sacrifice, yeah, of course you are, of course we are, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, what's next, Uh uh-huh, of course, yep, sure, of course we're being sacrificed. Everybody around us hates us. Of course you're being sacrificed. You're in prison, you're constantly beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, sure, yeah. What's the point, Paul? They assume, this is the point now, they assume to offer ourselves as servants to God, engaged in what he's about, building the church by the gospel, of course, in a world of darkness that is crooked and depraved, twisted, of course, that's going to mean suffering. Of course it is. This is my second point here. Slipped in here very, very briefly in their assumption, but not an assumption that we commonly share or one that we avoid. Christian. Suffering, hardship, disappointment, conflict. That is not evidence that we're doing something wrong. It's probably evidence that we're doing something right. Now, of course, I would need to be more careful in defining because obviously a bunch of conflict's wrong. But there is nothing about being the church, about being gospel-centered, about being gospel proclaimers to the world around us, about being gospel preachers within the church. There is nothing about being the church, about laboring to build the church with the gospel that is easy, that is exultant, that is triumphant, that is carefree, that is painless. We follow a crucified Messiah. There is a day of glory coming And that's not today. We Americans have a really hard time with this because in America, everything that is bigger is better. Everything that is shiny is good. And everything that is small and diminished and hard has obviously got a problem with it. But I just ask you, just change cultures for a second and step out to be a Christian in northern Iraq or Syria right now. And you see, that is stupid. That I think bigger is better and shiny is right. We are being killed all the day long. I'm thankful that James read Romans 8. Paul assumes in Romans 8, we are being killed all the day long. That's what it is, of course. Now, here in this country, 
by the grace of God, we are not being physically killed all the day long. But the church is in other places in the world. Why, why, why are the, the folks in the Islamic State crucifying people? Why are they doing that? It's not because it's just something they discovered they could do. That's, that's tied to some, some meaning, some purpose. I'm making a statement there. Leaving them, Christians everywhere in the world. Terribly persecuted. Coming to this country, not physically persecuted. A whole bunch of people in our country don't care one bit if we Christians are really nice people around them. They don't, they don't care. They're actually quite thankful for that. Some of them don't even care if we claim that there's an, exclusive, an exclusivity to what we believe. Some of them are fine with us believing what we want to believe. But I just stepped onto a continuum there. We start actually talking about this message, the gospel, talking about it, we're going to bump into more and more people who have a problem with it. If we start actually proclaiming it, we're going to bump into more and more people that have a problem with that. If we actually push it a little bit and say, no, friend, you are going to hell, we're going to have a problem, right? You all know that. Tell your friend who's not a believer he or she's going to hell. you got a problem. You might have just lost a friend. And you just discovered what the passage is about. Part of the reason we don't face the problems the world faces is that we live in a different country with different laws and different heritage, different history. And part of the reason is we don't actually talk about the gospel. And nobody here has a problem with me being a nice guy. That's not the testimony, the witness that Paul and his audience in the Bible is engaged in and is assuming. We have set aside what they're doing and put our, our own method of Christian living, which is largely be nice to your neighbors and hope they ask you. And then maybe hope they ask you really, 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 really strongly. I'm not saying anything wrong with that, of course. But that only is the problem. That, that methodology pursued exclusively, doing that only, that's the problem. If we engage in advancing the gospel into the world, we will find conflict. And ironically, if we engage in advancing the gospel into the church, we will find conflict. Because most Christians, think about this, if, if I'm a pitcher and you're a batter, this one's high and tight. Most Christians don't want anything to do with the gospel either. Because the gospel calls you to die to yourself. The gospel calls you to trust someone else other than yourself. The gospel calls you to give away your life. Most Christians are not interested in that. 
Paul assumes that to give your life, to give your life to build the church with the gospel is to sign up for hardship of varying degrees. We follow a crucified Messiah. He himself told us, if they don't like me, they're not going to like you. That's a fact, and I've spent a long time talking about it, a simple assumed fact, because we often aren't on that same page. I need to very briefly move on to what is, what is actually the main point in the 1718. That's a fact. What are we to do with it? Here's the third point. I'll be brief with this one. What do we do with that? We rejoice. We rejoice and be glad together. Here it is in the full sentence. We should be glad and rejoice in this life of sacrificial service. We should be glad and rejoice in this life of sacrificial service. That's what Paul's really driving at in verse 17. This is the reality. I'm being poured out constantly, and that's what God's determined that for you to be pleasing to him in your sacrifice, I need to spend my life, give it all up. That's why I'm in prison. That's why I was beaten when I first came to Philippi, locked up in chains. Okay, I'm okay with that. In fact, I rejoice and am glad in it. Because Paul's insane. Actually, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We all should be equally insane. He's on to something here. We are to rejoice and be glad together. This is what a Christian is supposed to look like. Rejoicing and glad together. Not while successfully avoiding being poured out as a sacrifice. I think sometimes we mistakenly read the, the statements in the Bible about gladness and joy and whatnot, and we think something like, well, there will be difficult things in life. There will be days of rain, and so I should rejoice in the days of sunshine. Be thankful for the good things God has given me. There is... Sorrow, there is hardship in life, yes. And consider also the blessings of God and the goodness and rejoice in that and endure the hard. And what we've done in our minds there accidentally is we've split the two and said, here's where I'd be glad and here's where I'd be sad. And what Paul is saying is, no. All of my life is a poured out all of my life is a sacrifice. I'm going to leave prison and head right back into the arena. All of it. And in all of that, I am glad and rejoice. That is his attitude. Is it not all through the beginning of chapter 1? If you were here when we preached through that, he's in prison rejoicing. Constantly. Not just in the fact that, hey, this is actually a pretty decent prison meal that I got here. Thank you, God. But 
in the whole of it. Not trying to find the little good nuggets, but in the whole of it. This is what a Christian, Paul, and you too should be like this. You too should rejoice and be glad with me. There's an attitude and a behavior. There's, there's an attitude of, of gladness. Of, I feel buoyed up and I act buoyantly. I rejoice. Different translations put the different, the, the words are very similar. Different translations put it differently. I, I'm glad or I rejoice together or I rejoice and I'm glad together. There's, one is about how I feel and one is about what I do with you. So why so downcast, oh, your soul? You know the second half of that statement from the Psalms. Because you haven't put your hope in God. That's how Paul can be such a lunatic and expect all of us to be lunatics too because of the gospel. Oh God, that's so good. Not because there is no prison and there is no hardship and the world is not actually as dark as it seems and because the laws of this country prohibit at the moment physical persecution and, and assure us of our basic rights. Thank God. Not because of that. Because of the gospel. Thank God that's the reason because that's a lasting reason. That's a universal reason. That's a reason that Paul can say to every Christian everywhere, you should rejoice and be glad with me. You engage in building the church with the gospel because of the gospel and because of God. You can be glad through everything. That is such good news to you, Christian. Such good news. Have you thought through how that's good news? Because whatever it is that burdens you and drags down your soul and makes you to sorrow and to mourn, real as it is, that is not fake. Real as it is, does not have the last word, cannot curtail, cannot eliminate, cannot destroy all of the goodness of the gospel, all the fact that God has won you to himself, given you he who is good, has assured you of everything that you need now and forever and ever and ever. Nothing in this world can take that away. And in fact, think for a second. 2 Corinthians 4. 16 through 18. Do you know that passage? All of this is light and momentary troubles. And not only can it not take away, that verse is awesome because it says all these light and momentary troubles, depending on your translation, are attaining for us, are providing for us, are creating for us, different translations put a different way, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outshines them all. All of the light and momentary trouble. You can rejoice in the midst of that because God has said, I reign over all of it. And not only is it not stealing from you, it's benefiting you. Crazy as that may sound. How is that? I have no real idea. I don't, I don't know. Read the verse. 
2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, this light and momentary trouble is not only not destroying us, it is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So you can look at the suffering, the hardship that I am enduring as I seek to build the church with the gospel, to seek to influence this one and that one, my family members, my acquaintance here, this one in my small group, this neighbor of mine doesn't know Christ. I seek to influence all these people. Some of them really don't like that. And it gets hard for me. And in all of that, I can know that this actually not only is it not destroying me, this actually is blessing me. Awesome. Awesome. If you will think about that, joy and gladness will rise up in you. Now, Paul's going to have a lot more to say about rejoicing in this book. I've kind of had to fill some of that in here because he doesn't say how or why. He just says to do it. This is what I'm like. You should be too. And you can be Christian if you will take the thoughts that you have about the stuff that happens to you, if you'll take those thoughts captive and you'll say, but I'm a Christian. And then you'll run the gospel through your mind. I'm a Christian, and that means that I've been won to him, secured by him. And he reigns over all of this to turn it for my good and for his glory. So I can rejoice and be glad in the midst of the sorrow. I can actually be happy amidst sadness. This is so good, Christian. Not instead of. You don't have to live a life trying to run from the hardship. You just embrace it and say, yes, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Because I remember, I am a Christian. And greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. What can separate me from his love? Nothing. And all of this is light and momentary. Insane as beheading sounds, called light and momentary. light and momentary, and it is preparing for me something awesome and glorious. Thank you, God, for your goodness to me. God reminds us of the end to give us direction in service so that we don't live vain lives, to remind us of what's coming, and to give us joyful hope in suffering that He really is God and there really is a future and there really is intimacy with Him now and blessing forevermore. So Christian, live in that. Rejoice in it. Let me pray.
Lord, I'm thankful that you have turned life. You've turned life from being successfully the work of evil to destroy us to be unsuccessfully the work of evil to actually bless us for eternity. That is bizarre. But you reign over all of it and control it all and are working your good purposes in everything that causes suffering for us and hardship for us. So give your people faith. Give your people the ability to believe that and then boldness to step out confident, therefore very bold, therefore not afraid. Wise, not foolishly bold, wise, but confident. Help me with that. Help each of us here. Move us, Lord, to build your church, to labor towards that end, using the gospel, a tool that you yourself will wield. Just to trust you, to labor for you, and to look to the end, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.